Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the Protestant doctrine of faith alone and contrasting that with the Catholic gospel. This was prompted by something I found on Reddit, and quite frankly, it just broke my heart. Here's what was asked on the Bible subreddit. How much faith is needed to be saved? I have a deep question. Can you be saved if you aren't 100% sure the Bible is true? Can you have any lingering doubt? That's... That's tragic. The idea that somebody's worried that that they don't have quite enough faith to save themselves and they have to somehow summit it up. That's not true. That's a false gospel. Responses ranged all over the place, but a popular one was, Oh, how much faith do you need? Well, the faith of a mustard seed. But may I remind you, listeners, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And I promise you, not I, nor this person, nor anybody else listening, has enough faith to move a mountain. Other people say, well, you know, it's not the amount of faith, it's in whom they place their faith. Well, true enough, but that only pushes back the question. Great, I put it in Jesus, now how much of that do I need? Other people say, well, well, why not just have the faith, just trust like a, like a little child? Well, am I trusting enough is the question. And other people just say, yeah, uh, good question, man. Um, some people just plain old don't know. Is this what salvation is supposed to be? Is faith alone correct? I would say no. I'd say this is not the Christian faith. It's not the true gospel. You do not need to be in fear like this about your salvation. Salvation does not, does not, does not, and does not actually depend on how hard you will yourself into a particular internal mental state. Salvation is not subjective, it's objective. It's not a function of your faith that you summon up. Instead, it's Christ's grace that's given to you through the way that he established. I want to read a bit from Galatians. This is uh, first chapter, about six through nine or so. I'm amazed how quickly you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is not even a gospel. Evidently, some people are troubling you and trying to distort the gospel of Christ. But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one that I preach to you, let him be under a curse. As we have said before, so now I will say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be under a curse. Those are the words of scripture. The gospel of the Catholic church is not the same as the gospel of the Protestant church. Therefore, one of us is wrong. And according to Paul, one of us is not even preaching a gospel at all. Instead, we are under a curse. One of us. There's no middle ground. It's not just alternate paths. The way is narrow. So I want to say one thing before we begin. You're listening to a Catholic convert. I was a Protestant for the vast majority of my life. I know the Protestant verses. I know the arguments. I've made them. If you're a Protestant listening, you're not listening to a Catholic who's ignorant of your position. I went to a Protestant fundamentalist Bible school growing up. My grandfather was a Protestant preacher. Two of my uncles are ordained Protestant ministers. My aunts and uncles started a Protestant school. 
My great-grandfather was a theologian. My dad was a deacon. My brother almost went to seminary to become a pastor, and he was the less interested in theology of the two of us. I attended college at Liberty University, the largest Christian university in the world. I've been part of numerous Protestant small groups studying scripture, and I've led multiple Bible studies. From God's first call to come into the church, it took me about 10 years to do so. All the while, I was looking for reasons not to join. Sure enough, joining the church for me was no picnic. I faced a lot of, of confusion, misunderstanding, and outright hatred for becoming Catholic. I have family members who used to be extremely close who no longer will even speak to me. Nevertheless, since joining, which is the best decision of my life, my wife, my cousin, my, my brother, his wife, my dad, my mother, good friend of mine, his wife, their three children, another friend of mine, losing count— They've all come into the church too. So God is absolutely at work. So for my Protestant listeners, before you assume that what I'm about to propose is the false gospel and what you might propose is correct, let me ask you this. What do you think I'm about to defend when I articulate the position of the Catholic Church? Because if you don't know what I'm about to defend, then you have no warrant to claim that your position is better in my position, you must know both of them in order to contrast. So let me ask you, do you think I'm about to propose a, quote, works-based salvation, where you have to balance out your bad deeds with good ones or work your way to heaven? Do you think I'm going to tell you that you have to be religious enough? No, I'm not. Often, this is the character picture of, of what Catholic, Catholic gospel is. Uh, Protestants commonly read Romans as if it's a, uh, as if Paul is some type of proto-Protestant, bravely battling uh, early Catholic type people who are proposing a works-based salvation. But actually, what Romans is doing is it's addressing people who told early Christians that they first had to become Jews before they became Christian. And trust me, not I, nor the Catholic Church, propose you need to be circumcised or obey the distinctive uh, Mosaic laws set down for the Jewish people. I don't even think you need to learn how to make Jew d delicious Jewish bagels. But instead, I'll propose straight from the Catechism what we believe. So prepare yourself for probably the longest single quote of the Catechism in at least my podcast's history. The fact is, I couldn't offer a better explanation if I tried. So we're going to go right to the source, the teaching authority of the Catholic Church, and see what it says. And it will be broken into th uh, three sections. Let's see, we're covering uh, uh, justification, we're covering merit, and we're covering uh, grace, I believe. So this is starting, if you want to follow along, in paragraph 1987. The grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us, that is, to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we take part in Christ's passion by dying to sin and in his resurrection by being born into new life. We are members of his body, which is the church, branches grafted into the vine, which is himself. God gave himself to us through his spirit. By the participation of, participation of the spirit, we become communicants in the divine nature. For this reason, those who the spirit dwells are divinized. I'll stop right here for a bit of commentary. Does the word divinized shock you? Well, let me point this out. In the book of John, Jesus replies to, I believe, some Pharisees, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and then he goes on to show that Christ is indeed divine. So let me ask you, did the word of God come to us? Well, yes, but not just in a law, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Far more was he with us as the word of God in the flesh than in the law. And in baptism, we're joined in his body. So human and divine can be brought together into the life-giving love of the Trinitarian God we worship through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by divinization, that we brought up into Christ and Christ is connected with God such that we share in his own divine life. Moving on, paragraph 1989. The first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion. Affecting justification in accordance with Jesus's proclamation at the beginning of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Moved by grace, man turns towards God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from on high. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. Justification detaches man from sin which contradicts the love of God and purifies his heart of sin. Justification follows upon God's merciful initiative of offering forgiveness. It reconciles man with God. It frees from the enslavement to sin and it heals. Justification is at the same time the acceptance of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Righteousness, or justice here, means the rectitude of divine love. With justification, faith, hope, and charity are poured into our hearts, and obedience to the divine will is granted to us. Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ, who offered himself on the cross as a living victim, holy and pleasing to God, and whose blood has become the instrument of atonement for the sins of all men. Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God, who makes us inward just by the power, inwardly just by the power of his mercy. Its purpose is the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in the divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Justification establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom. On man's part, it is expressed by the assent of faith to the word of God, which invites him to conversion. And in the cooperation of charity, love, with the prompting of the Holy Spirit who proceeds and preserves his assent. When God touches man's heart through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, man himself is not inactive when receiving that inspiration, since he could reject it, and yet, without God's grace, he cannot, by his own free will, move himself towards justice in God's sight. Justification is the most excellent work of God's love made manifest in Jesus Christ and granted by the Holy Spirit. It's the opinion of St. Augustine that the justification of the wicked is a greater work than the creation of heaven and earth, because heaven and earth will pass away, but the salvation and justification of the elect will not pass away. He holds also that the justification of sinners surpasses the creation of the angels in justice, and that it bears witness to a greater mercy. The Holy Spirit is the master of the interior life. By giving birth to the inner man, justification entails the sanctification of his whole being. Just as you were once, yield, you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness and sanctification. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves to God. And, return, and in return, what you get is sanctification, and in the end, eternal life. Next section, grace. Our justification comes from the grace of God. Grace is favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. Grace is a participation in the life of God. It introduces us into the intimacy of the Trinitarian life. By baptism, the Christian participates in the grace of Christ, the head of the body. As an adopted son, he can henceforth call God Father in union with the only Son. He receives the life of the Spirit who breathes charity into him and who forms the church. This vocation to eternal life is supernatural. It depends entirely on God's gratuitous initiative, for he alone can reveal and give himself. It surpasses the power of human intellect and will as that of every other creature. The grace of Christ is the gratuitous gift that God makes to us of his own life, infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul to heal it of sin and to sanctify it. It is the sanctifying or deifying grace received in baptism. It is in, it is in us the work of, the source of the work of salvation. Therefore, if anyone in is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. Sanctifying grace is a habitual gift, a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul itself to enable it to live with God, to act by his love. Habitual grace, the permanent disposition to act and live in keeping with God's call, is distinguished from actual grace, which refer to God's interventions, whether at the beginning of conversion or in the course of the work of sanctification. The preparation of man for the reception of grace is already a work of grace. 
This latter is needed to arouse and sustain our cooperation in justification through faith and in sanctification through charity. God brings to completion in us what he has begun, since he who completes his work by cooperation with our will began by working so that we might will it. Indeed, we also work, but we are only collaborating with God who works. For his mercy has gone before us. It has gone before us so that we may be healed and follows us so that once healed, we may be given life. It goes before us so that we we may be called and follows us so that we may be glorified. It goes before us so that we may live devoutly and follows us so that we may always live with God. For without him, we can do nothing. God's free initiative demands man's free response. For God has created man in his image by conferring on him, along with freedom, the power to know him and love him. The soul only enters freely into the communion of love. God immediately touches and directly moves the heart of man. He has placed in man a longing for truth and goodness that only he can satisfy. The promises of eternal life respond beyond all hope to this desire. If at the end of your very good works you rested on the seventh day, it was to foretell by the voice of your book that at the end of our works, which are indeed very good since you have given them to us, we shall also rest in you on the Sabbath of eternal life. Grace is first and foremost the gift of the Spirit who justifies and sanctifies us. But grace also includes the gifts that the Spirit grants to us to associate us with his work, to enable us to collaborate in the salvation of others and in the growth of the body of Christ, the church. There are sacramental graces, gifts proper to the different sacraments. There are furthermore special graces, often called charisms, after the Greek term used by St. Paul, meaning favor, gratuitous gift, or benefit. Whatever their character, sometimes it is extraordinary, such as the gift of miracles or tongues. Charisms are oriented towards sanctifying grace and are intended for the common good of the church. They are at the service of charity, which builds up the church. Since it belongs to the supernatural order, grace escapes our experience and, uh, and cannot be known except by faith. We cannot, therefore, rely on our feelings or our works to conclude that we are justified and saved. However, according to the Lord's words, thus you will know them by their fruits. Reflection on God's blessings in our lives and the lives of the saints offers us a guarantee that grace is at work in us and spurs us on to an ever greater faith and an attitude of trustful poverty. A pleasing illustration of this attitude is found in the reply of St. Joan of Arc to the question posed as a trap by her ecclesial judges. Asked if she knew that God that she was in God's grace, she replied, If I am not, may it please God to put it in me. If I am, may it please God to keep me there. Last section, Merit. You are glorified in the assembly of your holy ones. For in crowning their merits, you are crowning your own gifts. The term merit refers in general to the recompense owed by a community or a society for the action of one of its members. Experienced either as beneficial or harmful, 
deserving reward or punishment, merit is relative to the virtue of justice in conformity with the principle of equality which governs it. With regard to God, there is no strict right to any merit on the part of man. Between God and us, there is an immeasurable inequality, for we have received everything from, from him, our creator. The merit of man before God in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative and then follows man's free acting through his collaboration, so that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first place to the grace of God and then to the faithful. Man's merit, moreover, itself is due to God, for his own good actions proceed in Christ from the predispositions and assistance given by the Holy Spirit. Filial adoption, in making us partakers by grace in the divine nature, can bestow true merit on us as a result of God's gratuitous justice. This is our right by grace, the full right of love, making us co-heirs with Christ and worthy of obtaining the promised inheritance of eternal life. The merits of our good works are gifts of the divine goodness. Grace has gone before us. Now we are given what is due. Our merits are God's gifts. Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces need for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Even temporal goods like health and friendship can be merited in accordance with God's wisdom. These graces and goods are the object of Christian prayer. Prayer attends to the grace we need for meritorious actions. The charity of Christ is the source in us of all merits before God. Grace, by uniting us to Christ in active love, ensures the supernatural quality of our acts, and consequently, their merit before God and before men. The saints have always had a lively awareness that their merits were pure grace. After earth's exile, I hope to go and enjoy you in the fatherland, but I do not want to lay up merits for heaven. I want to work for your love alone. In the evening of this life, I shall appear before you with empty hands, for I do not ask you, Lord, to count my works. All my justice is blemished in your eyes. I wish, then, to be clothed in your own justice and to receive from your love the eternal possession of yourself. That's from St. Therese of Lisieux. So, that is salvation, according to the Catholic Church. Let me ask you, is that what you expected to hear? Is that what you've been told the Catholics believe? It certainly was a surprise when I first read the Catechism as a Protestant. I had no idea that that's how they viewed merit, that it was initiated by God. I had no idea that that's how they view works, that ultimately any good work prompted by God, empowered by God, and is directed back to God. I had no idea. So, now that we've cleared up some misunderstandings with the Catholic position, I want to address the Protestant position. And I'm going to break down a few different problems with what's called faith alone. 
or sole fide. Let me begin with an analogy. And here, we're going to be describing the problem of misunderstanding the content of faith. So I want you to imagine that you have, uh, that you're about to be dropped into the Alaskan wilderness. And before you are, you get the chance to meet with an Alaskan wilderness guide. And, uh, you're, you're going to want to listen to him because he's gone into the wilderness and he came back alive. Now, he tells you that uh, you're not just going to be saved because you, you, you try hard out there. Instead, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to trust him. You're going to have to put your faith in him on this one because he, he can survive. Now, let me ask you this. After he tells you this, which are you going to do? One, walk away and think, well, I have faith that this guide exists, and I have faith that he's survived the wilderness and come back alive. Therefore, I don't have to do any work at surviving. I shall sit in the snow and think hard about who my guide is and what he has done. Or, would you ask the follow-up question? O- okay, all right, so it's, so it's not just about, you know, like, trying hard or or just just... Being out there, it, it, it's about, like, like, what do I have to have faith in you? What do I have to believe you about? How do I survive? We are told to have faith. But faith in what? We are told to believe in Jesus. But believe in Jesus about what? So, you may say that you believe there is one God. And in the words of James, you do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. Or, in my dynamic translation, oh, you believe there's a God? Do you want a cookie? Demons do that much, and they believe much more deeply than you. And of course, we could extend this to, oh, you believe Christ rose from the dead? Or, oh, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Yeah, you want a cookie? Demons know that. Demon-possessed people know that. Or, to quote one of them in scriptures, I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. Paul says, if I have faith, um, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. The demons lack the divine love of God poured into their hearts because of their willful and free choice against their creator. So knowing who Christ is, is not enough. Listening to his teaching is not enough. Sharing a common meal with him is not enough. Those are necessary but not sufficient conditions, a distinction we'll talk much more about in the next section. Quoting from Scripture, Then Jesus traveled through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way towards Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked, will only a few be saved? Jesus answered, Make every every effort to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. After the master of the house gets up and shuts the door, you will stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I do not know where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. And he will answer, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, you evildoer. So it's not enough to know who Jesus is. He can still say to you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. So there has to be a content to this faith. It's not just enough to say, I believe Jesus exists. I believe he was the Messiah. Okay, Jesus calls you to faith, but 
Just like if I handed you a box and said, do you accept this box? You wouldn't just accept the box and nothing in it. If I give you a package and said, do you accept this package? You wouldn't accept the packaging and not what's in it. If I wrote you a letter and said, hey, do you, do you accept this letter? You wouldn't just accept the, the paper and the ink and not what's written in it. Further, if you met that guide and he said, you're going to have to have faith in me, you're going to have to have trust in me, you don't just accept that he exists or that he is a guide. You have to accept what he tells you, what, what is contained in this revelation. So, quoting from scripture again, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered them, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Okay, remember, not just that he exists, the demons and demon-possessed people do this. So let's go on. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I will not lose any of those who he has given, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, again, we have to ask, believes what? Believes in the Son doing what? In saying what? Well, this is quite the lead up here. Jesus declares well, that very, very truly I say unto you. He, he's getting quite insistent, though he will double down far more. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread. Okay. Um, at that, the Jews began to grumble. And they said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can we then say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among, themself, among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who draws them sent them. And I will raise them up on the last day. It is written to the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He only has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. There it is again. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, 
and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, now that we know that accepting a box means accepting what's in the box, accepting a letter means accepting what's in the letter. Having faith in your Alaskan survival guide means not just accepting that he exists or is a guide, but involves accepting what he says as it pertains to your survival in that great wilderness. Well, here, having faith in Jesus when he says that you have to believe on him, faith in him, implies that you are accepting what he then says. So you can't accept Christ and reject what he says because what he says is directly from the Father. For it is written, they will be taught by God. So it's a question of accepting God or not. And here, he doesn't just lay out that he is the Messiah or, yeah, arise again, though those are unbelievably important. But he lays out what Catholics call the doctrine of the Eucharist that he gives to us under the form of bread and wine, under the appearance of bread and wine, the very body, blood, soul, and divinity of himself. So in the same way that he's joined with God, because he is God, he is of the same substance, we can be made of the same substance, joined into his body. And because it's human, we can be joined. Because he is God, we are then joined back to our creator. So we're going to take a quick break here and then move on to the necessary versus sufficient conditions. Necessary and sufficient conditions. This leads us to our next big point. If that guide, that Alaskan survival guide said to you, if you bring enough food for the trip, you'll be okay. Does that mean that the only thing necessary is food? After all, he said, if we bring food, we'll survive. Well, obviously not. What about this? It's not a parka that's going to save you from freezing to death. It's the layers of clothing. Does that mean that a parka is not necessary? Or does that mean that it must be included in its proper place amongst the layers? No one would make such obvious mistakes in misunderstanding their guide when risking their body. But when reading scripture, Protestants make these same type of mistakes when risking their souls. With this in mind, is the following verse a necessary or a sufficient or complete condition? Quoting, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If it said only, then it would be sufficient. It does not say only. But maybe it means only, but there's only one surefire way to find out. And here it is. We just find another necessary condition. And how about this one? And you'll be familiar with it now. Truly, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you will have no life in you. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Truth does not contradict truth. There is no such thing as scripture against scripture. You must say amen to every part of the Bible and without exception. Therefore, this too is a necessary condition. And if there is more than one necessary condition, that means, by definition, that the earlier one cannot be sufficient by itself. But there are many others. Let me give you another necessary condition for salvation. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand with angels, authorities, powers, and submission to him. Yes or no, does baptism save you? The answer is yes. Well, how? Well, Peter tells us it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of clear conscience towards God. It saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone up into heaven. So what all does that mean? Well, the Apostle Paul clarifies. Aren't you aware that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we were united with him in this death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. We know that our old selves were crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we may no longer be slaves to sin. For anyone who has died has been freed from sin. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. Baptism joins us to the body of Christ so that his resurrection becomes our own. Quote, For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, which is Christ. So, to recap this one, the Protestant view imagines that necessary conditions are complete, sufficient conditions. Is it true you need faith to be saved? Yes, it is. Is it true that you need faith alone to be saved? Oh, no. And to read verses to imply an only is clearly contradicted by the fact that there are many other sections of Holy Scripture that prescribe other things, things that aren't faith, but are nevertheless required. So, in the same way that you shouldn't misunderstand your Alaskan survival guide when he says, you'll survive if you have a good tent out there, and think that means all you need is a tent. But instead, what we ought to do <laughs> is everything he says is necessary is necessary. Why? Because he's our, he's our guide. He knows how we can survive. Scripture is our guide here. We've been pulling from these passages and found there are more than one thing, more than just faith. So it is not faith alone. That is false. The next section. Protestants think that wherever the Scripture says works, it means either works of the law or works of the flesh. 
So what are works? How many types of works are there? Do works save us? Catholics point out that there are three senses of the word. One, there's such thing as works of the flesh. And quoting again, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, co-divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, works of the flesh are these, They're quite evident, and we are a list of them. So, do these get you to heaven? Do works of the flesh get you to heaven? Well, no, quite the opposite. If you do these works, they get you to hell. Because Paul says, if you do these things, such will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's our first category. Second category, works of the law. Quote, we now know that no person, we now know that no person is not justified by, is now justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay, that's our second group. Now, do the works of the law justify us? Well, well no. Are there any other types? Let me suggest this. And this is from uh, James chapter 2, I believe. Quote, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? So either one has to say that Scripture contradicts Scripture, or there are more than just the two types of works that Protestants typically accept. Paul says, If Abraham was indeed justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The solution to this contradiction is simple. In Romans, Paul is referring to the works of the law that aren't sinful, but they also don't have the power to justify a person. And this is made obvious when you just read a little bit further. Is this blessing only on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. In what context was it credited? Was it after his circumcision or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Paul is proving his point that Abraham is not and could not have been justified by the works of the law, Because not only did the Mosaic law not exist yet, but Abraham wasn't even circumcised at the time. Paul points out that the law only condemns. It does not make one holy, and that's a fact. So to take this, um, and to so at this point, we can't suppose that Abraham was justified by works of the flesh. Those are ones which condemn you. He can't be justified by works of the law. They didn't exist yet. So there has to be another type. All right. So to take this, um, so yeah, so we can't suppose that these are, are works of ungodliness that did it. So let's go back to Paul for a second. He makes another very, very important, um, proclamation. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. 
to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Does that sound similar to what you just heard in the catechism? Let me read it one more time. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Bam! That's the third category we're talking about. Works that are of God in you. So we have three types, not two types of work. So baptism is a work of God in you. Baptism now saves you, Scripture says. The reception of the Eucharist is a work of God in you. We're told that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. Loving God and neighbor with a supernatural love is only possible when God works in you. We are told to be the hands and feet of God, willing and acting to fulfill his purpose. Our father Abraham did not offer his son as a work of the flesh, or it would have been an abomination. He did not do it as a work of the law. The law would have forbid it. <laughs> Abraham, listen closely, Abraham, being empowered by supernatural faith, was obedient to God, and with fear and trembling worked out his salvation. God worked to will and to act his good purpose in him. Do you see it? What is God's good purpose? Well, offering his salvation as a propitiation for our sins. And Abraham is so closely united with God our Father that in his very works of offering Isaac, the heart of God is revealed by foreshadowing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, faith versus works? No. Faith allows us to see God, to see the truth. Our wills then choose to cooperate or to rebel. If we cooperate with God, then our will mirrors his will. Our acts in the world are his acts in the world. God's actions are saving. And when we're united with him, with him by faith, because of his grace, our actions are saving just like his. Not in a dead fleshly way, not according to the Mosaic law, but because it is God who wills in you, to, who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. All right, here's a speed summary of a number of these points. So we're addressing faith alone. First point, faith alone is just flat wrong because scripture itself says, quote, not by faith alone, quite clearly in James. Martin Luther himself recognizes this, and as a result, he tried to remove James from Scripture. Now, there are ways you can try to wiggle out of this. Oh, maybe it means this or that. But here's the thing. We ought to read what is unclear by what is clear. Scripture clearly says, and not by faith alone. Next, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. Therefore, love and faith are obviously necessary. So to say, I have faith alone and that saves me. Well, Paul would say, I don't care if you have enough to move a gosh darn mountain. If you don't have love, you're nothing. So at very least, if you accept scripture, if you accept what Jesus Christ says, have faith in Jesus Christ, you'll accept the words which he gives us. And some of those are, through the person of, uh, of Paul, 
that we have to have love paired with our faith or it's nothing. So that and that alone disproves faith alone. Further, it can only be faith alone if the alone part was true, meaning if we find any other necessary conditions for salvation, then the alone part of faith alone is false. So are there any other necessary conditions put forth by Scripture? Yes, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in me. It's a necessary condition that disproves faith alone. You have to be incorporated into the body of Christ by baptism. We're told that baptism now saves you in the words of Peter. Therefore, it is not faith alone. More than that, you can't commit a mortal sin and remove yourself from the covenant. Or do you not know, this quoting, that the wrong, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men will enter the kingdom of God. The sins that Paul lists preclude you uh, from the new covenant, and they're also the same ones in the Old Testament that kick you out of the old covenant. Now, can God forgive any sin? Yes, of course, but there are some sins that lead to death, that either your your soul dies, you're kicked out of the covenant, um, and, and these have to be addressed in a different way. These are what's called mortal sins. And we can do another section on the different types of sins and on the sacrament of confession, but I will leave you with this verse from John. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. Now there is sin that leads to death. And I am not saying that you should pray about them. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. There you go. Two categories. Sin that destroys, that kills your soul, that breaks you from the covenant. And sin that's still sin, but doesn't break you out of the covenant. That's shown in the Old Testament. That's repeated in the New Testament. And that's made sense of with the list that Paul tells us that of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, there's another necessary condition. Don't remove yourself from the covenant. So, now we have a number of these. So, is faith necessary? Of course. But does that preclude the necessity for God to be at work in you? Well, of course not. But all of those are works of God in you that lead to salvation, each one of those that we mentioned. So, if you're baptized, your sins are cleared, and you're united with Christ. You're objectively saved unless you commit a mortal sin. If you do commit a mortal sin, then you go to the sacrament of confession and you are objectively made right with God. No mental gymnastics are necessary. No need to will yourself into a particular mental state. We have objective means of getting God's grace, sacramental means of receiving God's grace. So what is the answer from the Catholic perspective? Whether or not we are saved. If Protestant comes up to you and you're Catholic, says, hey, are you saved? I would suggest something like this as a response. We're saved through Christ's incarnation, life, death, and resurrection by being installed into his body, the church, and incorporated by adoption into the family of God through baptism. I'm continually being saved as God upholds me in righteousness. When I fail through my fault, God saves me from my sin 
by prompting me to confess and empowering me to turn from evil and choose good. One day I will be saved at the resurrection of the dead because the infinite merits of Jesus Christ won eternal life for all those who are united with him in his body. And until that day, I'll run the race as if to win it. All right, closing this down. If you have taught the Protestant faith alone gospel, you need to repent of that. I have taught against the true faith. I have taught a false gospel. And that's no small thing. And it's no small thing if you've done the same. Jesus said to his apostles, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Christ calls you to conversion, to repentance, just like he did the Apostle Paul, who writes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You might think you're not bad, as bad as the Apostle Paul. After all, he killed Christians. But Scripture says, Fear not the one who kills the body, but the one who destroys both body and soul in hell. It's a worse thing for a soul to be destroyed. And if you have been like me and offered, promoted, taught a false faith alone gospel, the Protestant gospel that lies mainly by omission Ignoring the reality of baptism, the Eucharist, confession, and the works of God in you that are necessary for salvation, just to name a few, then you must repent. You have harmed the souls of others. Faith alone was the rallying cry of the Reformation, the, nef- the definitive splintering from the church that Jesus prayed would be one, as he and the Father are one. Luther changed the words of Scripture by putting alone after Romans 3.28 to read faith alone. He wished to remove the book of James, amongst other books from the Bible. And he had to do this, because as we've seen, his view, faith alone, was not biblical. It was certainly not the gospel that was passed down from Christ. Faith alone is a new and man-made view that harms people and deprives them of the life-giving love that God intends for every person who seeks to follow him. So if you're hearing this as a Protestant, maybe I changed your mind. Hmm, sure. Love, works of God in us that lead to salvation. I don't know, maybe even the sacraments. Okay, why not? You know, I could accept that as a Protestant. Sure. But not so fast. How on earth could you stay Protestant after changing your mind on this? 
faith alone, is core to the Protestant identity, core to its message. It's literally the genesis of its differentiation from the Catholic Church, that and Sola Scriptura. Frankly, if Protestant theology didn't get this right, if it can't get salvation right, if it can't get the gospel right, how can you trust its teaching on anything else? Faith alone qualifies the pre-exorcism demoniac that Christ meets, I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. It qualifies him as saved, but it disqualifies Thomas, the apostle, who is in union with church, union with Christ, but still has lingering doubts. I would add that this false gospel meets the condemnation of Paul, who puts such teachers, who teach a false gospel, like faith alone, as we've seen, puts such teachers under a curse. So frankly, if you're listening as a Protestant, it's time that you drop your pride and examine the claims of the church that has stood for 2,000 years. I had to do it. Numerous of my friends and family have had to do this. And yeah, it's hard. I get it. But right now there's a wave, particularly of younger people who are doing this who are grappling with the truth of the Catholic faith and recognize the theological bankruptcy of the Protestant denominations. Denominations that are wrong in the most fundamental things, telling us faith alone to our great detriment. And I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there, guys, and I appreciate you listening. I invite you to listen to some of the other resources on this podcast. I have a three-part episode on the Eucharist, and I'm thinking about doing a fourth. That's another one that if the Protestants are wrong on that one, then you've... Oh my goodness. Well, you'll have to listen to that episode. I have another one on faith if you want to hear more about what faith is and how we defend it. I have one on reason that takes the other side and looks at, at the, the life of the mind and, and how we reason to truths. Because... Faith and reason are two sides of the same coin. Um, so I invite you to dig into any of those. And of course, you can always email me at thegordianknot101 at gmail.com with any questions, with any comments. I only really scratch the surface on this topic. So if there's something that you wish that I covered in this, well, go ahead and let me know. Again, the email is thegordianknot101 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.